Hi, everyone. Welcome to Waste 360's Nothing Wasted podcast. On every episode, we invite the most interesting people in waste, recycling, and organics to sit down with us and chat candidly about their thoughts, their work, this unique industry, and so much more. So thanks for listening and enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. This is Liz Bothwell from Waste 360 with Emily Tapato, Executive Director at U.S. Plastics Pack and one of our fabulous 2023 40 Under 40 winners. Hi, Emily, and congrats again on your big win. Hi, Liz. Thanks so much for having me. And it was such a wonderful surprise to be recognized. So definitely still excited about that. Oh, good. Well, it was well-deserved and Please give the audience a little background about your journey to the U.S. Plastics Pack. Sure. I have kind of a quirky journey, and it's always interesting to talk about this, especially with young professionals who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their career or how they get from A to B. I, It has not been a linear journey, nor uh, have I ever been a person where if somebody asked me, like, oh, where, what do you want to do in five years? Or where do you want to be in 10 years? I've honestly never really been able to answer that question. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, probably says a lot about my personality type. But I, um, yeah, I came into this kind of in a, a funky way. Like my background is not a hard science background. I have a history degree and a master's degree in international relations. And it was after I got my master's degree that I became really interested in policy, but I I wasn't interested in um, working on Capitol Hill. That, that didn't really interest me, but I wanted some way to interact with policy. And I wound up finding these things called trade associations, which <clears throat> as a student coming out of graduate school, I had no idea that they existed or what they were, or that there's honestly probably a trade association for everything under the sun. Um, so whatever your interest might be, there's likely some sort of industry trade group. But I found my way to the American Chemistry Council, where I uh, joined their legal team as a paralegal and then moved into their regulatory and technical group. And I had that ability to interact with policy and business in sort of an indirect way. And it was really amazing for me to have sort of those different intersections as well as stakeholder development. So early on, because it was working with a trade association learning those skills of stakeholder management. And I, I learned a ton. I was with the American Chemistry Council for almost 10 years, the first four or five with the regulatory group. And then I moved over to the plastics division, which is where I really got to sink into broader plastic sustainability issues, worked with a lot of the resin producers who sell into the US packaging market and meet all of their customers and downstream partners. So sort of getting into that world of understanding waste management and recycling, understanding the breadth and depth of 
EPA's data sets and how the consumer goods companies make decisions about how they deliver products to the market and learning all the different players interacting with groups like National Waste and Recycling Association or the Association of Plastic Recyclers and so on. Um, so again, I was there for almost 10 years. I then went to More Recycling, which is now known as Stina Inc., a small consulting firm, mission-driven, very focused on collecting recycling data for the U.S. and North America, and they do some project management as well, and got to work on some really interesting projects with them. And while I was there, I was recruited to lead the U.S. Plastics Pact, which finally kicked off in August of 2020. And so it, it kind of came in from left field, but it, it's been a really uh, interesting opportunity to kind of marry together a lot of different skill sets from both my time at ACC as well as my time with more recycling and the knowledge that I have gained along the way. So here we are. Um, I've been with the PACT about a week, like joined about a week after it launched in, in late 2020. And we're already talking about kind of what happens next, but we can get into that in a little bit. Wow. I mean, your background, if they wanted to create a person who could run the, the pack, I, I mean, they couldn't have created a better person than you with your background. Like you said, marrying both sides of the industry. Um, so kudos to whomever found you, because I mean, it sounds like you, you found your calling. <laughs> yeah, it's, I felt like I couldn't say no when the opportunity came up and it, it was definitely, and it still remains kind of scary on some point because, and we use this phrase a lot within the pact, probably overuse it, but it is true that we are building this plane as we're flying it. Mm -hmm. And there isn't a precedent set, which is an interesting place to be in, especially having worked in previous roles where it was very clear kind of what the expectations were, how you were supposed to do your job, what the objectives were, and how to do it. Whereas, like, we are figuring this out as we go. It's a unique beast, and there isn't there isn't a blueprint to follow. So it, it keeps things interesting. Oh, that's, that's great. And 2020, I looked at your baseline report, Emily, and the PAC had some aggressive goals that were really focused on 2025. And that's certainly coming up fast. How are you feeling about the work that's been done so far and, and reaching those goals and striving um, beyond that? Yes. So we launched with very ag aggressive goals that are aligned with goals from other plastics packs globally. So there are, I hope I get this right, I think uh, 13 other plastics packs right now, in addition to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's global commitment that they have. So the framework and genesis of the plastics packs 
really comes from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's New Plastic Economy Global Commitment work. And the, the basic idea that if these companies, and there, I don't even remember how many at this point have signed on to that global commitment, but if those companies are going to be successful and meet the commitments that they've made globally, then that has to play out in all of the markets in which they operate. And so that's where the idea of the in-country plastics pact came from. And it's it's a really interesting construct too. And it's the first time ever that I know of where there are multiple voluntary organizations across the globe that are using the same terminology, which sounds trivial, but is so important. And I know even within the US, we really struggle amongst municipalities and amongst states, let alone amongst different parts of the federal government as to like what different terms and words mean. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we have all, you know, these 13 voluntary organizations across the globe that represent hundreds of companies are all using the same terminology and have created similar metrics that track back to those aggressive targets we have and the terminology that we're using so that we're able to demonstrate progress or not. You know, we're able to measure things and compare apples to apples, which is so awesome and has not happened before. So I, I think that's one really big thing that has come out of the creation of the U.S. Plastics Pact and others is um, getting companies comfortable with annual reporting about the packaging that they're using and answering questions about the materials that they're using and are they implementing reusable packaging systems? Are they designing things to truly be recyclable or truly be compostable? because there are high benchmarks for that. And then being able, again, to not only kind of look at what's happening in the US, but also across the world. So our goals, um, you know, they, they were, they are extremely aggressive. And this also gets back to the nature of the pact. The pact, when it came together, and, and it still is like, we're meant to be like a flashpoint. It's meant to be a catalyst for change and a catalyst for creating the structure around a circular economy for plastic packaging in the US. So it's meant to kind of light that fire under people and then hold them accountable through our annual reporting process. So getting people comfortable with annual reporting is has been a, a big deal and probably a bigger deal than some might think. Um, and knowing that we're not, we, we may not meet exactly each of the four targets that we've set out for ourselves, but we have made some progress and we're better able to discern kind of like what's important, what's important and where the interventions need to be. I would say because of the data that we have and have collected over the last couple of years, we have much better clarity into what's actually happening in the market. Oh, that's great. And and to your point, I mean, 
you can't minimize the impact of of having um, that terminology because, like you said, it's always been so regionalized before, and and that has really gotten in our way um, in a number of areas, right around recycling mm-hmm. and and um, and waste in general. So that's that's a huge accomplishment, and I, I know you have that list of of pack you call them activators, right? The companies who have signed on. Can you talk more about those relationships? Because I know that could, that can be tricky and you really need to be um, a partner advocate in order to get those relationships done and signed off on. Yeah, so we call our members or the signatories to the U.S. Plastics Pact activators. And that was actually a term that predates me joining the pact they created it sort of with as they were putting the pact together. And I will say both the Recycling Partnership and World Wildlife Fund US are really the two groups who get the credit and deserve the credit for pulling together the US Plastics Pact in the US. So putting a lot of resources in up front to to pull the pieces together. The pact is now its own standalone 501c3 organization, but we had incredible support from both the Recycling Partnership and WWF, and they both continue to be partners in the journey, just in a little bit of a different shape at this point. Um, We launched, when we launched, we had 62 activators, and again, they're called activators because we're different from a trade association in that The only way we're going to meet these four aggressive goals. So when people show up to the packed table and say, okay, we want to be a partner, like we want to join. That means that they are signing on to help us as a group, as a pact, meet those four aggressive targets. And they're agreeing to things like the annual reporting requirement that we have. So in order to meet our four targets we need all of those signatories regardless of where they sit in the value chain to be taking action and that's that's where the term activator comes from we now have over 120 activators and we are kind of a unique group in that we span the whole value chain so everybody from resin producer through converters and consumer goods companies and retailers and some equipment providers and technology providers and reclaimers, composters. And then we have a host of folks in the nonprofit sector. So representatives from academia, other environmental NGOs, Um, And we also have public sector representation, which is unique, I think, compared to some other groups out there. And those folks have been so incredibly helpful. So we have a few city representatives who have joined the pact or or cities, I should say, as well as counties, a regional, a couple regional government organizations and um, state. So their input and perspective has been really valuable too, especially because the pact also operates in terms of our decision-making or our small group work. We, we try to 
put together those groups, those small groups, for example, to be representative of the value chain so that you don't have a group that's all plastic reclaimers or all haulers or all brands, but that there are kind of a few representatives from, from each of the different areas, including the public sector, so that we can bring all of those perspectives together as we're hashing out challenges or putting together deliverables or making decisions. That makes sense. Um, wow, it's such a great group. Um, and I know you, I saw in your nomination for the 40 under 40 um, that you were an integral part of the problematic and unnecessary list. Can you, can you tell us what's on that list and um, why you built it? Sure. So related to one of our four goals, the first target is around reduction or elimination of things that are determined to be problematic or unnecessary in the system. And there's early on, and probably still so, I, I would say yes, still so, there's a lot of consternation around the list. I know, particularly in the US market, companies don't like red lists, black lists, they don't, um, there's a lot of opposition and challenge to that whenever it pops up in legislatures. So this hasn't this wasn't an easy thing for a lot of folks to swallow but i think just kind of pointing people back to like let's go back to the epa's waste hierarchy and at the very top of that is reduction mm -hmm. and this is really no different i mean we as the us plastics pact are looking to build a circular economy for for plastic packaging and we need to look at what doesn't fit into the system. Like we can't just continue on with the status quo doing what we're doing and think that we can kind of like cram everything into this new vision we have. Like that is an unrealistic expectation. So based on how we're looking at recyclability, how we're looking at compostability and how we're looking at sort of design overall, are there things that maybe aren't necessary to the performance of the packaging and delivering the product to market? Or are there things that, based on the data we have and the public information that we know, are contaminants to the recycling stream and don't have sort of the investment and commitment behind them to change that? And, and that's kind of a big point. So, and that's something where I often challenge companies, like if they're upset about something being on the list, then saying, you know, well, what, how are you in, how are you engaging with others in your space or, you know, others who deal with or produce the same materials? Like, what are you doing to overcome this challenge? Because right now this is a contaminant or a, a problem for the recycling stream. Um, our list is on our website. If folks want to see it, there are 11 items on it. And it's broken down into a couple kind of different categories, the, just the way that this shook out. So there are some kind of ancillary packaging items, as we've called them, things like 
cutlery or stirs. There are a couple of resins that are listed, like PVC, polystyrene, and PETG. And then there are some other materials like oxo-degradable additives, including oxo-biodegradable additives and things like non-detectable pigments, for example, carbon black. Uh, we also have perfluorinated compounds listed on there, so PFAS, which I know is becoming a really hot legislative issue uh, on a lot of fronts this year. And then other, um, a couple of other things, uh, what, what am I missing? Oh, problematic label constructions, which again seems kind of trivial, but it's amazing how much that has an impact on the recyclability of a lot of products, whether it's bottles or thermoforms or other other packages. So the, the last thing I'll say really quick, Liz, is that a number of these things on this list, not all of them, but a lot of them, if you are following good design guidelines and the pact defers back to the APR preferred design guidelines. So if you're using those as a designer and, and really trying to optimize what you're putting into the market up front so that it's great feedback on the other end, you won't be using a number of these materials. Gotcha. So design is, is definitely a big part of it too. Oh, that's good. And that's great that you, you brought that up. And that's really the only way that we'll find a solution, right? Right. Design is so, so important. I really, I can't stress that enough. And it's something that's within the control of the companies, of the retailers, of the consumer goods companies. I mean, far too often I still hear like, oh, well, the infrastructure doesn't exist, so we're going to wait. No, you can't wait. Like, you need to start making these changes now because it takes time to to develop new packaging structures, to test them out so that you know your product is protected or that you have the supply of whatever it is that you need for that new packaging format. So design is something that's within the control of the companies who've made lots of packaging commitments and sustainability commitments, and they can start working on that now. That's great. And you've done so much work around plastics and, and packaging in general. Um, what What's your vision for the future of packaging? Oh my gosh, that's such a huge question. It is. <laughs> um, well, it's interesting. I think we'll continue to see more of, and, and I've kind of seen this ebb and flow, but see more of the intersection of material usage and what it means in terms of climate impact mitigation. Because sometimes that those two conversations are still happening separately and they're not mutually exclusive they're not necessarily in conflict with one another. They require some, like marrying those pieces together does require some prioritization, which is hard and means that people have to make decisions that may not be easy. 
but but I think it's important for us all and for the health of our families and communities and worlds to to think about the broader impacts and not to make kind of rash decisions just because there is a lot of pressure on plastic, for example, right now. So to just kind of go into things like eyes wide open and and that this and and this is where it gets really hard, but it's not about a marketing play. It's not about short-term wins, which I know is really, really hard when you're a company that's beholden to quarterly returns. But mm-hmm. that we're we're talking about like a longer term play. And so I think as as much as we can help create the environment that incentivizes better choices we'll all be kind of better off. I do think based on what we've seen so far and the realities of who's willing to fund what upgrades or how that might work, like we we may see some consolidation in the market in terms of the or it, the types of materials used in packaging so that it's easier to to get them back and use them as recycled feedstock so we're we're dealing with less of a just mishmash of all types of materials and and it's more streamlined i do think that we'll see that i'm curious as to what will happen with composting i, I think there's a lot of work to be done there but i think there are definitely some packages that if everyone's kind of honest with themselves, especially when it comes to like small things that that hold food or hold sauces, like will those ever truly be recyclable? And and maybe there are better choices for the end state for those things. And composting could be one of them. But I know that there's there's a lot of stakeholder work to be done there and a lot of proving out that it will be valuable to to the composting stream. So I think immediately, you know, there's some hard decisions to be made. But again, as I was saying before, we I think the days when companies can kind of hide in the gray space of not knowing or not having data and saying, oh, you know, we can't make this decision about whether we want this package to be compostable or recyclable or, you know, this is how we're choosing to design it, but we're not really sure, like, I think those days are coming to an end because we have a lot of data and it we're hitting the tipping point of okay now you just need to make a decision and and go and some some folks may make mistakes and and others you know may more kind of like band together to to try and take that leap all at once I think EPR coming into the US and, and some of those state programs coming online will do some of this, but it certainly won't solve all of our problems. Mm-hmm. So true. And I mean, to, to that point, you talked a little bit about incentives and I know on LinkedIn the other day, you said something so true where, you know, economics are really the issue. That that are holding us that are that's holding us back. So you said there's no real economic incentives um, as we try to build a circular economy. 
What do you think needs to happen there? Again, I know this is a huge question, but I would love to hear your thought process. Yeah, I I was so frustrated the other day <laughs> because <laughs> I, I don't normally post things like that. But I was I had just read a paper and and it was so the omission of economics as being one of the challenges in the paper that I was reading was so glaringly obvious that I just was I was going bonkers and I just had to write that because still like I mean and I think I think we are reaching a point where again people aren't trying to push that under the rug as much as they once were but mm -hmm. I still hear things like, oh, we're going to work on this project and address all the technical barriers. And it's like, well, that technology, like there are technologies that exist to do whatever it is you're trying to do, whether it's take colorants out or dryers for film so that the film isn't wet and gross. Or, you know, like there are things, there's lots of technology out there. And it then becomes a matter of who's going to pay for it and then who's going to be willing to pay the price to buy whatever's coming out of that process. And that's where it all breaks down. So there are just so many things. So but one of the things rather than dwelling on the fact that economics are upside down and and that's a continual challenge, I think one easy, tangible place and we've started to talk about this within the pact. I know the Association of Plastic Recyclers talks about it, but is in terms of incorporating post-consumer recycled content and really creating demand for that. And I will say, just because a company has made a commitment does not mean that there is demand. So commitment does not equate to demand. And that's something else that I've seen people try to make the argument about in other things I've read, and that's just, not true or i haven't seen it yet but really getting companies to look at how they can incorporate more post-consumer recycled content so it has like the trickle back effect and we the pact recently just last week released a, a pcr post-consumer recycled content toolkit it's on our website and it's meant to provide some guidance around you know, why it's important to, to really focus on demand for PCR and using it, guidance around purchasing it. So who are the suppliers? What do pricing models look like? What are contract considerations? What about certification for it and all of those things? And then some guidance around considerations for integrating it. So FDA requirements, if it's food contact, material or on pack labeling things that you should think about and really so getting back to the economics like if we could get to the place where it was the norm for particularly for those companies who've made pcr commitments or even just recycled content commitments but really pcr commitments to put in place long-term contracts for that material with a floor price like that would just be huge because the the way I, without like totally going down the rabbit hole but because of the way that plastic 
recycled plastic commodities trade today and it being a spot market, you know, whatever is on the market for the lowest price usually wins out. And that could be off spec resin, like virgin resin, or it could be post-consumer resin. It could be post-industrial resin. Um, so it could be a lot of things. So having those kind of long-term contract commitments would go a really long way. So that's that's my soapbox. <laughs> well, I like it. No, and it's true. A, a floor would work. Um, yeah, and I was going to ask about the market fluctuations lately and how it was impacting the feedstock abilities and how companies feel about using it, but you pretty much answered that right there. Well, and and one other, just like one last thing on that point, which I've also learned over the last couple of years, and the PACT is hoping to provide some more guidance on this this year, is that a lot of companies, because they are still in nascent stages of using more recycled content, like they don't understand the market drivers and fluctuations of recycled plastic materials and how they trade. Like they don't know how they, and and it's not necessarily their fault. They just don't know. And they sometimes there are assumptions like, oh, well, I can just procure it the way that I procure all of the other materials that I use. No, like mm -hmm. you can't, it's totally different. And there are major swings and it could be related to something as, you know, seemingly trivial as, oh, Americans drink more soda and water in the summertime because it's hot. So there are more PET bottles out there and the price goes way down. Mm -hmm. So just like things like understanding things like that are, it, it, we shouldn't take it for granted that people know that and are aware of that. And so there's definitely an opportunity for greater awareness just about how these commodities trade and what that means for their pricing. Definitely. That's a great point. And then another part of the market that seems to be coming up a lot is reuse. And I, I saw that you did a reuse catalyst program, and I would love to know how that went because it fascinates me because reuse seems so promising, but I know infrastructure is a challenge. So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, so reuse is part of our 2025 target. So our second target is around 100% of plastic packaging either being designed for a reuse system for recyclability or compostability. So we have that, that reuse piece. And it also kind of gets into, um, you know, it, it, are there ways in which that we could take unnecessary things out of the system and maybe deliver them in a different way? And, and reuse could be an outlet for that too. We are focused pretty broadly on reuse, which I think is a, a good thing at this point because this is another area that are that's in a very kind of baby stage, particularly in the US. And we're seeing different things take off, but there's still a lot of understanding and awareness that needs to happen. And so we're looking at it broadly. The packed scope includes primary packaging, secondary packaging, and tertiary packaging, which the, the breadth of that I think is good too in, in terms of thinking about opportunities for reuse because it could mean 
yes, like a business to consumer thing where you and I would interact with, say, like a reusable cup at a coffee shop. But it could also mean, you know, reusable pallets and dunnage boxes that are are used to transport produce and bakery items for grocery stores back of house or you know, even on the sort of tertiary side, like thinking about pallets in particular, plastic pallets potentially replacing wood pallets that have a longer reusable life and can provide, you know, benefits like all the way back in the system. So we're thinking about it very broadly. The Reusable Packaging Association is part of the pact. And just a shout out to Tim Debus and his team. They have such a wealth of information on the technical side and the economic side. And they have been a really great partner and resource for us in thinking about B2B applications of reuse in particular. As part of our first, and this was announced last October, our first Sustainable Packaging Innovation Awards where we worked in collaboration with Walmart to identify four award winners and then a handful of honorable mentions for a couple of different categories like compostability, recyclability, but then the other two were, um, one focused on refill, which Clorox won for a refillable cleaner solution that they have on the market today, and then one for reuse, which uh, that award went to Deliver Zero, and they provide a platform for reusable food service in a couple of different cities across the U.S. So, you know, if you ordered a salad through DoorDash or something, you would have the option of selecting reusable packaging, and it would come to you in the Deliver Zero packaging and, like, operate through those channels, which is pretty cool, and then go back through those channels. So... That's happening. We are in the midst of reviewing the second round of award winners, which will include another award going to refill and another award going to reuse. And then, as you mentioned, Liz, we also have our Reuse Catalyst program, which launched, launched earlier this year. And that's focused on uh, company, some of the companies, there are roughly 25 who are participating. Some of them are a little more early stage where they have pilots but may not yet be fully commercial. But it's focused on re different types of reuse in the U.S. Everything from refillable operations in a grocery store to shipping boxes that are reusable and can be kind of flat packed and used over and over again, shipping goods to consumers, to things related to delivering fashion, a lot of, a lot of different types of reuse. And so we're working with them alongside WWF and Closed Loop Partners to do some data collection and mentoring for those companies and also provide them sort of entree into the broader packed network and be able to make some of those relationships with consumer goods companies or retailers, grocers, and, and so on. And I'll just note on the data collection piece, I think that's one thing we've heard from even some of the big multinational CPGs like 
Well, we still don't quite totally understand how the U.S. consumer is going to interact with, you know, this reusable thing. And so we're trying to help collect some data that we can then publish externally around both like the environmental considerations for different types of reuse, as well as some consumer in information and like the sentiments around um, how folks like or don't like interacting with particular reuse models. Oh, I think that's great that you have the data collection piece. That's so important. And back to what we even talked about earlier about the terminology, if you can have terminology that's succinct and um, can be used across the country. And then now if you have real data um, and can collect that and analyze that, you'll be worlds ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I've got my fingers crossed that we'll have enough on both the environmental consideration side and then the consumer side that we can aggregate stuff and share it externally. Um, and yeah, and we're really looking for ways, and and this is an evolving thing too, talking about building the plane while we're flying it, like working with all of those companies who are part of the reuse catalyst and some of the other reuse, there's some crossover with those who are members of the pact. Some of them are not members of the pact, I'll, I'll note, but glad to kind of bring them into the fold in this way. But understanding from them, how can we, with the resources kind of that we have from all of the members or activators of the pact, like better support what they're trying to do. So really trying to foster that. I know the, the one other thing I'll note is we've done, we've started to do a little bit of thinking around policy that would better enable reuse in the U.S., Upstream is a member of the pact as well, and some of your listeners may be familiar with their work. They, over the last couple of years, have been extremely focused on reuse um, in food service and some other sectors, as well as policy work. So we're really trying to think about like what that could mean for the U.S., and that's a very new area, too. Like I'll, I'll say a, a lot of the government relations folks from a number of these companies may be very, very familiar with extended producer responsibility or deposit return or even PCR mandates, but have you know we're all still kind of learning on what's the art of the possible in terms of supporting reuse via uh, legislation. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And then I have more of sort of a general question and I, I hear this a lot kind of being objective within the industry and I'm sure you have being knee deep um, in plastics. There's, there's tension between stakeholders who see plastics as evil and others who build businesses around it. So how do you reconcile this and, and find a happy medium where real progress can be made because you've certainly done that with the pact. Yeah, I think that's a constant. I I, I often tell people I kind of feel like I'm on a roller coaster sometimes. <laughs> um, where and this I think a lot of it goes back to stakeholder management and alignment around broader goals. So I think that what you're describing is something that I'm really, really thankful for every day with the pact are our four targets. And I'm thankful for those because when things start to go squirrely or go off the rails, like we can bring everybody back 
to those four targets because that's everyone agreed to help to work toward those things. So the first one around reduction, the second one around 100% reusable, recyclable, compostable, the third around supporting the national recycling and composting rate, and the fourth around uh, incorporation of, of PCR and responsibly sourced bio-based materials. So, you know, kind of bringing everybody back to that is really helpful. And understanding that, especially as our group has grown, the cat herding has only gotten more intense. And, you know, reminding folks that sometimes, like we're not gonna make everybody happy all the time. Like we strive for consensus whenever possible. But with 120 plus stakeholders who, who do span like the spectrum you're talking about, uh, we're not gonna make everybody happy all of the time. So we need to kind of remember like, this is what we're working toward. We need to go back to that and understanding that sometimes folks can give on certain things, but can't on others. And that's obviously a individual company decision. Um, and, and I think one place where this really played itself out was with our problematic materials list decision, our initial decision uh, at the end of 20, when was that? I don't even remember. At the end of uh, <laughs> 2021, when we, when we brought all of that together, and there've only been a couple of times within the PACT's life that we've had to vote on things without just kind of having alignment and being able to move forward. We voted on the scope of the materials uh, for the US Pact, and we've voted on the problematic and unnecessary materials list. And there were definitely folks, and kudos to them, who voiced dissent or voiced concern over different things, but then in the end voted in favor of moving forward with the list because like they weren't going to die on that hill and they knew for the greater vision of what we're trying to do that like things would work out. So again, having, you know, having those foundational targets has been in incredibly helpful. And then of course, doing all of the legwork to hear everyone and ensure that everyone feels as though they have been heard is also really important. Oh, that is. And I think that's a huge part of any collaboration. You you hit it on the head there. So, Emily, you've done amazing work. And like we said before, you're a 40 under 40 winner. So a lot of people coming into this industry will be looking up to you. Do you have any advice for people coming into the industry, whether they're young or change of career? Mm, a big thing that I tell like to tell lots of people especially younger professionals is that you are your best advocate for yourself and i learned i'm thankful really thankful that i learned that early early on in my career from a boss of mine and it has been really valuable along the way and that you can't wait for other people to give you things or you know give you opportunities or give you a raise or look to you for a promotion or something like you need to be your own best advocate and that's so so important 
and that don't be shy about reaching out to your network because people, I think more often than not, are so willing to help you however they can, even if it's just lending an ear or helping you kind of work through something. So just the importance of your network. I know I'm so grateful and thankful, and this really came to um, came to light for me when I won the 40 under 40, like how grateful I am for all of the people who've enabled me to be where I am today. Oh, that's great. Well, there's plenty of them and you've done amazing work, so I'm sure it will continue. And I love that advice because it, you need to be you need to be a self-advocate and you need to look out for yourself. But like you said, you, your connections and um, your collaborators are the ones who get you even further. So that's the best advice I've heard. <laughs> well, thanks Liz. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Now, is there anything Emily that you wanted to share that we didn't touch on? I don't think so. I think oh. we covered a lot of ground. I think we did too. So thank you. And I look forward to meeting you in person soon. Um, not at this Waste Expo, but hopefully at another event soon. Yeah, me too. Thank you, Liz. And have fun with those three boys. I know you will. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Have a good day. Talk to you later. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.